All right, let's, uh, we're going to jump into uh, the, the sermon series um, now. And uh, so we are in week two of a little sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes before. Maybe you ran across it in your youth. Maybe you heard it in some of the songs that we've been doing um, to open up the service. Uh, but the book of Ecclesiastes is really kind of intricate, and it can be very, very uh, confusing if you don't know how to interpret it. And actually, that's intentional. That's the way that uh, the, 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 the author of it, who calls himself the preacher or the teacher or the assembler, but that's very much the way he intended it. In fact, um, here's what it says. It says this, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. And so part of what the author of the book um, Ecclesiastes is saying is he's saying all of these wise sayings, particularly here in the book of Ecclesiastes, are intended to really make you think, right? And so, so often you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes and it says, you know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And you go, wait a minute, I thought we thought everything was meaningful. You know, what do I do with that? And he goes on to say, you know, wisdom is meaningless. And you go, wait a minute, I thought the proverb said it was meaningful. And, uh, and all, it's just, you know, he throws all these things at you. And the purpose of the author is to really make you wrestle with what's true and how to live life in light of what's true. Now, last week, we talked about a couple of things to sort of set the table in order to read it. One of the key phrases that's used over and over again, over 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, is the phrase, under the sun. And what the author is doing is he's saying this. He's saying that phrase under the sun means if there's no God, right? Or if there's no such thing as transcendence underneath the sun, all you can see is the earthly realm, then life has no meaning, right? Life is meaningless because if if there's nothing transcendent, if there's no God, then it's just sort of survival of the fittest and, you know, do whatever you want to do, get away with whatever you can get away with and, uh, you know, live the best 60 or 70 or 80 years that you possibly can. That's the idea of under the sun, right? As so he wants you, he's forcing you to look at life from a purely secular standpoint. There's also another word that's used over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word is hebel, H-E-B-E-L. And what it means is, what it's usually translated as is uh, meaningless or vanity. And so it can mean that. It literally means vapor or breath, but it's used over and over again. It's usually translated meaningless, meaningless, right? Or vanity, vanity. But it's also used in another way in Scripture, and in that other way, it's used as mysterious, right? And I think that's part of the way you have to read the book of Ecclesiastes, is you have to understand that if you're talking about life under the sun, if there's no God, then it is actually meaningless, right? There's no meaning if that's all you can see. However, if you realize that there's a life above the sun, that there's a God who exists, that there is something transcendent, then all of a sudden life isn't meaningless, rather it's mysterious, Now, we're going to jump in in just a moment, and we're going to take a look at one of the themes that is talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's the theme of wisdom. And uh, before we jump in it, though, I'm going to take a moment, and I'm going to pray. Father, thanks so much um, for not only allowing us to be in your presence through your Son, but inviting us to be in your presence. Father, as always, I just want to ask that you wouldn't let us leave here today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So about six months ago, I was up in Chattanooga, and uh, I was coming back home, and I had called Krista, and, and I said, she wanted to know if I was going to be back for dinner, and I said, you know what, I probably am going to get back too late, so I'll just grab something to eat on my way home from Chattanooga. And so I was uh, driving, you know, from downtown, and I was going to go through Fort Oglethorpe, and as I went through Fort Oglethorpe, I was kind of hungry. It was probably 5.30 in the afternoon, and every now and then when Krista's not with me, you know, 
I kind of get to sort of be who I would be in a vacuum. And so I get to maybe like eat Krispy Kreme donuts or I run into a gas station and I get these things called French peanuts and a Coke, you know. Well, this particular day, I was driving along and, uh, and I saw the golden arches in the distance in front of me. So we got a little sign here. This is the kind of thing that has not ever happened in the Pierce household. I mean, it's, it's, it had probably been five years since I had eaten at McDonald's. And so as I was driving home, I thought, you know, this would be the perfect opportunity to get a quarter pounder with cheese, a large fry, and a large Coke. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'm in. You know what I mean? And I just had to figure out how to hide it from Krista when I got home. But whatever. Anyway, so I pulled into McDonald's, parked the car. I was shaking with excitement because it had been so long. Went in and I was getting ready to order and I looked up on the menu board and, you know, they had recently started putting the caloric intake uh, sort of signs on the menu board. And I looked up there and the quarter pounder with cheese, let me make sure I've got this right. The quarter pounder had 530 calories. And not only that, but it had 42% uh, of your fat allowance for the day. And so really quickly, I did the math and I thought, I'm still good. Anyway, (laughs) then I thought, well, if I get fries, because the truth is, come on, like if you're going to go bad, go all the way bad, right? And so I looked at the fries, 510 calories, right? And 37% of your daily fat allowance. And I was like, well, I'm still kind of technically under that 2000 barrier, you know what I mean, for caloric intake. And then I looked at a Coke and a Coke was going to be 290 calories for a grand total of all three of those things was going to be 1330 calories, right? And so I had knowledge, I had the knowledge of what that added up to, right? That's, that's, I had the information. That's good. Knowledge is not wisdom, right? Wisdom is something very, very different. Wisdom is not only what's true, but it's also what to do. And I knew exactly what I should do in that instance. Now, as we talk about knowledge and we talk about wisdom, it's also important to talk about folly, which the book of Ecclesiastes gets into. Folly is when you know what's true, when you know what you should do, and you don't do it, right? That's folly. And so I stood there in McDonald's in Fort Oglethorpe looking at the board, and I, you know, I had a decision to make. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to have um, some boar's head sandwich meat and an apple and a piece of cheese for dinner. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do, right? And so that's what I decided to do. Although I did get uh, an ice cream cone, which was 200 calories. So go wisdom. Anyway, so... That's better, right? That's better. Anyway, point is, you know, again, knowledge, wisdom, folly, all those things sort of are interplay. Wisdom is ultimately knowing what's true and what to do with this world that we find ourselves living in. Now, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, this man who calls himself, you know, the preacher or the teacher, he does a couple different things in regard to wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first thing he does is he really sort of hits hard the vanity of wisdom, the vanity of wisdom. And so I'm going to just talk about really three things that he talks about in relationships uh, to wisdom that make it vain or that make it meaningless. So he says this, he says, apart from God, wisdom is rendered meaningless because of sorrow. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying, look, if there's no God, then what's the point of being wise? Because being wise just makes you unhappy. It just makes you sad, right? So let's look at verses um, 16 through 18 of chapter one. They say this, he says, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. You can't grasp it. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. You've heard the old saying, ignorance is bliss, right? Ignorance is bliss. There's a sense in which under the sun, that statement is absolutely true. 
you know, I could have uh, grown up in Greenville, South Carolina. I could have gone to Clemson or the University of South Carolina. I could have, you know, chosen a job where I made a lot of money and I could have gotten married and had a family and I could have spent, you know, my weekends watching football or playing golf or whatever. And I could have sort of avoided thinking deeply about life. And there's a sense in which under the sun, that kind of makes sense, right? Instead, I chose to go to Covenant College up on Lookout Mountain, liberal arts college, and I was exposed um, to all of this wise teaching, right, and knowledge. And some of you guys have been exposed to that in the various colleges you've gone to or through campus outreach or through Young Life or whatever the case may be. And part of what you realize is sometimes the more you know, the harder life is, right, the more depressing it is because all of a sudden you can kind of see behind the curtain. There's a great scene in The Matrix for those of you guys who've seen the movie The Matrix. There's a character named Cypher who had been sort of plugged into the matrix and had been rescued and taken out of the matrix. And there's a point at which he betrays Neo and the rest of the people that are sort of fighting against the matrix. And he's sitting in this restaurant with Mr. Smith. I don't know if you guys remember this scene. And he's cutting a piece of steak, which is part of the matrix. It's not real. And he sticks it with his fork and he puts it in his mouth. And he says, you know, I know that I'm just living in the matrix. I know that uh, the matrix right now is telling me that the steak is juicy and delicious. But he said, I don't care right? And then he says, he said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll, I'll betray Neo. I'll turn him into you. He said, but I want to be wealthy and I want to be powerful. And I said, and he said, when I wake up in the matrix, I don't want to remember nothing. That's what he says. I don't want to know nothing, right? And there's a real sense in which he had experienced um, knowledge, right? He had seen wisdom under the sun. And what he said was, it did nothing but make me miserable, right? I don't want that. Some of you guys have had that same experience where you look at life and you're like, ooh, you know, I wish I didn't know what I do know. I wish I could have just gone on sort of living this life without being aware of all those things, just sort of pursuing pleasure, pursuing happiness. But now that I've got this concept of God and who, it, who he is and how it is that he wants me to live, life's just, it's just hard, right? It's just more difficult. And some of you can identify with him. If there's no God, what's the point of being wise? Because really it only brings sorrow under the sun anyway. It's one point that the author of Ecclesiastes makes about the vanity of wisdom. And again, he's pushing you to sort of deal with the reality of life if it's only under the sun. The next thing he says, apart from God, that wisdom is rendered meaningless because of death. And so let's sort of unpack this for a second. This is chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, the wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not long be remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die, right? And so the key again here is to remember that we're looking at wisdom under the sun or if there's no God. And so Koholet, Kohelet is saying, if there's no God, then what advantage does wisdom really get anyone? What's really the point? If wisdom gains you wealth, but you can't keep it, what's the point? If wisdom allows you to build buildings and do big things and establish a name for yourself, but then you die, really, who cares, right? Not only can you not take it with you, but people will forget you and they'll leave everything, you'll leave everything you've gained and accomplished to someone who might actually squander it all right? What's the point of being wise if you're just going to die and you can't take it with you? Uh, the only thing I really know about Marcus Aurelius is what I learned in the movie, The Gladiator. Um, and then I read up on Wikipedia a little bit, but I know 
that he, he was called the, uh, the philosopher king. And so he was trained in Stoic philosophy. He was really a great emperor who united and maintained sort of the unity of the Roman empire. Now in the movie, what we see is that his son Commodus kills him. Well, that didn't happen in history, but what did happen in history is Marcus Aurelia really continued to expand the borders of the Roman empire. And not only that, but he was a good and he was a wise emperor. But then when it came time for him to die, he turned his kingdom or the empire over to his son Commodus. And what historians tell us is very accurate is that Commodus absolutely ruined everything and undid all of the good that his father had done in no time, right? He squandered it all. What the author is saying here is he's saying, if there's no God, if there's no truth, then why bother with wisdom? What's the point? Why be wise if you're just going to die and lose everything that your wisdom has gained? It's meaningless under the sun, right? It's kind of pushing us to take a look at the reality of life under the sun. The third thing he says about wisdom and its meaninglessness under the sun is he says this, He says, apart from God, wisdom is meaningless because it can so easily be undone, where all the advantages that you gained by being wise can just crumble in a heartbeat. Here's what he says in a section of different verses. He says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good, right? We see that in life all the time. He says this, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, there's a lot of perfume, there's just one dead fly, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Just a little indiscretion ruins the, uh, the sort of the greater good. He says this, extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. And so each of these wise sayings gets to the same point. In essence, what they're saying is why bother being wise or building a life on wisdom when it requires so much effort and it can so easily and so quickly be undone. Some of you guys are familiar with the movie 300 that, I don't know, came out now 15 years ago or so. But in it, it sort of talks about the historical battle of Leonidas and 300 Spartans as they defend this gap from uh, the invading Persians and uh, Xerxes and his giant horde. Part of what you know about that story is that the Spartans are doing this amazing job uh, because of their uh, sort of military acumen of, of, of protecting Sparta and guarding this gap so much so that Xerxes and his troops can't get through until one of the Spartan warriors betrays them and he tells the Persians of a secret path by which they can outflank uh, Leonidas and the rest of the troops and they're destroyed. So much wisdom and so much good undone by one little piece of indiscretion. Some of you guys are familiar with Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was an English philosopher. He was a scientist. He served as the attorney general and as Lord Chancellor of England, right? He built up this reputation and he built up this life After his death, he remained extremely influential, and he was even called the father of empiricism. What many of you don't know about Francis Bacon is the way that he died. In 1621, Lord Chancellor Francis Bacon had been given the highest legal office in England, right? So he was, in some respects, one of, if not the the most powerful man in the land. But in 1621, he was accused of having taken bribes, of extortion, of using his power to accomplish personal gain. He was tried, he was convicted, and then he was placed in the Tower of London. And what's amazing is he didn't defend himself and say, no, 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 I didn't do that. That's a false accusation. What he did is he admitted, he said, you know what? He said, I was actually kind of struggling financially and the temptation was just too great. And so I gave in, right? 
And so a lifetime of wisdom, a lifetime of influence, a lifetime of all these good things, and in a moment or several moments of indiscretion, it's all undone. What's the point of a life of wisdom if its benefits are so quickly undone through folly, through bad luck, or through a moment of indiscretion? If under the sun is all we get, then the question has to really echo in our minds as wisdom, is it really worth it? Or is it really worth it? Wouldn't it just be better to just sort of make a lot of money and kind of do whatever you wanted to do? Wouldn't that just actually be better, right? If there's no God, you know, just eat, drink, because tomorrow we die, right? That's part of what the author of Ecclesiastes is pushing you towards. He's saying, look, if there's no God, deal with it. Like get real in a heartbeat, right? And understand that it's just survival of the fittest, right? Don't mess around with wisdom. Don't mess around with truth or knowledge. Just go with power or go with pleasure or maybe stoicism. Shut off your heart. That's what he's saying. saying There's just no point to it if there's no God. Now, one of the things that he does do is he switches around from sort of telling you about the meaninglessness of wisdom to telling you about some of the value of wisdom. And so we're going to unpack a couple of those sections really quickly as well. But you'll see sort of where he's coming from. One of the things that he says is he says, well, at least one of the values of wisdom is that it is, it is better than folly, right? He goes, at least it's better than that. So let's look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. And so after pointing out all the downsides of seeking a life of wisdom, here the author, Kohelet, shows us the other side of the coin, and he basically says, well, at least wisdom is better than folly. At least it's better than wickedness. And part of what he's saying is even, even under the sun, even if there is no God, that wisdom is better because the practical outcome, the logical outcome, the most common outcome of wickedness and folly is ultimately unhappiness and it's misery and it's chaos and a chaotic life. And so he basically says, well, even if there's no God, it's at least being wise is at least better than all of that, right? It's not really that high of a recommendation. It's more of a pragmatic kind of like, well, it'll help you not suffer as much. The second value of wisdom that he talks about is he basically says, well, wisdom is also valuable because you can gain influence. And so verses 13 through 15 of chapter four say this, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty without his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. And so what the author here is saying is he's saying, even though wisdom doesn't necessarily guarantee you anything, he says, but the likelihood is that a wise person will gain influence and a wise person through that influence will gain power. So again, that's better than folly, right? That's, that's better than wickedness under the sun. The last thing he says is that not only does wisdom, is it, not only is it better than folly and wickedness, not only does it yield influence, but it also yields security. It keeps you safe. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. One of the primary themes, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, is in Proverbs, Solomon discusses at length 
how if you are wise, then that wisdom will actually protect you. It will keep you safe. It'll keep you secure, most likely. Wisdom saves money for a rainy day. Wisdom doesn't steal or gossip or slander. And therefore, somebody who's wise or lives a wise life doesn't have to fear retribution. Wisdom doesn't lose its temper or say something that will come back to hurt the person who said it. In general, living a life of wisdom guarantees a life of security, a life of safety, a life of goodness, and a life of peace. And so essentially what Kohelet is saying here is he's basically saying, he's saying, look, wisdom, it's better than folly, right? But it's still ultimately meaningless. It's kind of what he's saying. And so the question for those of us in this room this morning is, is that really all there is to the book of Ecclesiastes? I hope not. Right? I hope it's not simply that wisdom isn't all that it's cracked up to be, but at least it's better than folly and wickedness. If life were lived exclusively under the sun, then yes, that really is all that Ecclesiastes has to tell us, if that's true. But fortunately, that's not the message of Ecclesiastes. Listen to chapter 12. I'm going to read some verses. Chapter 12 says this, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. That applies to a lot of us in this room. Before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders, that's teeth, cease because they're few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners grow about the streets. Remember him that is God before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Remember him, remember God. And here the framer says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And so what's the message of the end of the book of Ecclesiastes? It's remember him, remember him, remember God, remember him in the days of your youth. That's the charge ultimately of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's so easy to live life under the sun, but you have to remember that there is another world above the sun. And in that world above the sun, our actions, our thoughts, everything has eternal significance. And remember to honor God because ultimately he will judge our thoughts and our deeds and our motives. If that doesn't drive you ultimately to Jesus, I don't know what will. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're also told to remember, right? But we're told to remember Jesus, right? That's, that's where our hope comes from. If I stop before the Lord's Supper and simply say, hey, honor God, obey him, be good, be wise, then I haven't said anything that makes this a Christian sermon. I've just taught you to be better, 
right? And to try to, to earn God's favor through obedience and being good, but that's not Christianity. The definition of Christianity is you couldn't be good enough to be right with God, and so he had to send his son Jesus to be perfect on your behalf. And so this meal of bread and wine on my right um, and on your left and bread and grape juice over here on the other side, this meal represents that our hope isn't in our righteousness. It's not in our wisdom, but rather it's in the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. And so this meal today of bread and wine is not for everyone. This meal of bread and wine is only for those people who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, who remember that he is their salvation, their strength, right? And so for those of you who aren't at that point yet, I would simply ask that you sit back and you watch the people of God as we remember Jesus, our Savior, in this meal of bread and wine. I'm going to take one moment. I'm going to read what we call the words of institution. And as I'm reading these words, and I pray for a moment, what I would like to ask you or invite you to do is to simply sit back and to remember, right? Remember that your salvation is because of Jesus, not because of your righteousness. To remember that your salvation is because of Jesus, right? I'm going to simply ask that you take some time and that you remember and receive and that you feel deeply the forgiveness and the righteousness that comes through him alone. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I pray that we would remember you in the days of our youth. Father, I pray that right now we would remember your son, Jesus, who who lived a perfect life and died a death that should have been ours, drinking the cup of wrath that belonged to us, and then rising from the dead, Father, to guarantee not only that we are forgiven, but that we too will share in the resurrection. And so, Father, I just pray that our hope and our strength and our security wouldn't come from us or our behavior or our perception of our goodness, but I pray, Father, that we would remember now as we take this meal that our salvation and that our righteousness is found in your son Jesus alone. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.